You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Death as Metamorphosis of Life. This is Lecture 5, entitled Rebellion Against the Spirit, given in Hamburg, June 30, 1918. There are many ways to approach the question dear to our hearts that we have often discussed, namely, why so few people in our time have found their way to a spiritual understanding of the world order. Today, let us consider it from a point of view that will lead us to certain thoughts that may be very important for us, especially in these times. In studying humanity's relationship to the spiritual world, what interests us especially is our relationship to those human souls in our circle, souls with whom we have karmic connections who have already passed through the portal of death and are thus already in the spiritual realm. Our relationship to the dead will always be one of the most interesting aspects of our relationship to the spiritual world, and it shows most clearly how spiritual science and the physical sensory world differ in their understanding of the human being. As I have often pointed out, As we come to know the spiritual world, we must often radically break with our conventional notions about physical life, because the terms we have to use for what happens in the spiritual world are generally the exact opposite of the ones we use for the physical world. Of course, this does not mean that simply turning the physical world upside down and reversing everything will lead us to understanding the spiritual world. That is not the case. Rather, every detail must be examined and experienced individually. Still, particularly regarding our relationship to the so-called dead, we must begin by adopting concepts and terms that are the opposite of the physical and conventional ones. We can learn from spiritual researchers what things are like, but what they tell us about our relationship to the dead is what more or less all of us experience already, except that for most of us it remains subconscious unless we are spiritual researchers. Thus I will be talking here today about things you all experience also. In particular, I'll be talking about the relationships to the so-called dead you are all part of already, but without being aware of it. It is up to spiritual science to make us conscious of these things. Once the spiritual world has thus revealed itself to you, you will find that in communicating with the dead we will, of course, not use words as we do with the living. Instead we will address the dead with our thoughts. If we have a true connection with the dead soul, we'll feel that what we address to the dead in our thoughts 
our questions and concerns, is coming from them. In contrast, when we ask someone a question in our physical life, here, we hear ourselves speak as we address our words to the other person. Conversely, when we're talking with the dead, we feel ourselves quiet. For if the dead really receive the words we address to them, and if we have a real connection to them, then our words, our thoughts, seem to come from the dead to us. The dead seem to speak to us, and what they're saying comes out of the depths of our own soul in the form of an answer or a message. In other words, the way we communicate with the dead is the other way around from how we talk to people here in the physical world. It thus is not surprising that many people don't notice this in their ordinary life. It goes against what they're used to. By the same token, if most of us didn't have such a hard time getting used to something unfamiliar, many more of us would be able to talk about their interactions with the dead. For example, we're all always in relationships with the dead who have a karmic connection to us. And if you want to intensify and deepen this relationship, you must first understand an important rule, namely that abstract thoughts and ideas have hardly any significance for the spiritual world. Everything that remains abstract will not reach the spiritual world. That is, if you only think abstractly of a dead soul, if you only love that soul abstractly, then not much of this will actually be received by the dead. In contrast, if you anchor your connection to the dead in something concrete, then the dead can receive your communication. To achieve this, remember a particular time when you were with that person before he or she died and recall in great detail how that person was sitting or standing or going for a walk with you. Recall the dead in concrete situations, what he or she said, what you said, and try to remember his or her tone of voice. In addition, and this is the hardest part, revive in yourself the feelings you used to have for that person. Let them come to life again in your soul. Begin with a concrete, specific situation you shared, and then try to say something to the dead soul, something you would want to say or ask if that person were still alive. And do this as vividly as you can, as though that person were still there with you. If you do this, you will reach the dead soul. He or she will receive what you want to say. However, this does not happen all at once as soon as you feel that you are telling or asking the dead soul something. The connection between you takes time to become established, and time has a different meaning for spiritual life than it does here in the physical world. On the basis of what I've just explained, you can establish a real connection with a dead individual even without being a spiritual researcher. 
However, for your message to reach the dead, it must wait for a certain time. In general, for those without special initiation and without a conscious relationship to the spiritual world, one particular moment is especially important for establishing communication with the dead, the moment of falling asleep, the moment that carries you from the waking state into sleep generally also carries everything you have addressed to the dead in the course of the day to that person. Thus, the same path that takes you into the spiritual world as you fall asleep also takes your communications into the realm of the dead. That is why we have to be very careful in interpreting dreams. Often dreams are merely reminiscences of what we experienced that day, but they can also be reflections of something real. And very often, though not always, our dreams of the dead are based on our relationship with an actual dead soul. People often, and mistakenly, believe that what appears to them in such dreams, what the dead communicates to them, is in reality just as it appears in the dream. On the contrary, the dead receives what you want to convey to him or her as you fall asleep, and what your dream shows you is how the dead received your communication. In other words, when the dead tells you something in your dream, it is an indication that your message was received. Thus, rather than believe that the dead soul appeared in your dream to tell you something, you must realize that your dream shows that what you wanted to tell a dead individual has reached that soul, and by means of the dream the dead is showing you that he or she has understood what you wanted to convey. The moment that is especially important for receiving a message or answer from the dead is that of waking up. What the dead want to say to us is carried to us from the spiritual realm in the moment of our waking up, and we experience this rising up out of the depths of our own soul. Typically, however, people don't like to pay attention to what rises up out of the depths of their soul and this is especially true in our time. Generally, people prefer to receive impressions from the outer world and to focus on only what is in this external world, and they prefer to numb themselves against what comes up out of their soul. When they finally do become aware of a thought or idea rising out of their soul, they believe it as their own inspiration and thus gratify their vanity. We tend to think of everything that comes up out of our depths like this as our own idea, our own inspiration, and occasionally that may even be true. For the most part, however, the inspirations and ideas that come up out of our own depths are actually the answers the dead are sending to us. In fact, the dead are living closely together with us, and what seems to speak out of their own depths is really what the dead are telling you. Therefore it is essential that we interpret this experience in the right way. I've already told you about the details of communicating with the dead. For example, reading aloud to them and so on.
the more vividly, feelingly and imaginatively you enter into these things, the more meaningful your relationship with the dead will be. It is very important to clearly understand this, for in our time the truth about these things is needed more than ever. We are living in an era in which our organism is in decline, a decline that began a long time ago. As a result, our body cannot express how spiritual and wise we really are. In ancient Greece, people's bodies reflected and expressed their spiritual nature. But since about the middle of the Atlantean period, the human body has been in decline, a condition that has by now advanced to such an extent that our spiritual nature can no longer be expressed in our body. Accordingly, we find frequently that at death we have not yet completed, so to speak, our development, if only people would probably, uh, properly understand this. We are developing throughout our life. But we can only become aware of that part of our development that is reflected in our body. Some of us are already very wise at the time of their death and could still provide valuable services both to the earth and to the spiritual realm, but their declining body cannot reveal these things to them and make them usable. However, once we establish a relationship with the dead in the way I've described, we can make use of those services. In fact, the dead want to continue their activity and contribute to physical life, but they can do so only by way of human souls that open themselves to the dead in the right way. As I've probably told you before, this issue is dear to my heart. For example, I don't think of my work as continuing where Goethe left off, as studying him and his worldview in terms of history or literary history. Rather, I've always been convinced that I'm not just dealing with the Goethe who died in 1832, but with the one living at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. What I'm interested in is the living Goethe, though he took much away with him when he left the physical world in 1832, he can still work on in our world if we could only realize it. Accordingly, my books are not merely the result of research in literary, but rather they convey what he has told me. However, contemporary culture, our so-called spirit of the age, is completely opposed to what I've just told you. Spiritual science must always be involved in life and bear fruit for our life. In our time, an ideal is gaining ground, however, that goes totally against what I've described as a peculiarity of this era. This ideal is evident in people's continued striving to have as little faith in life as possible. Essentially, people have faith in life only until they are in their twenties, as their practical goals already indicate. <clears throat> in contrast, in ancient Greece, people still believed that they would be wiser in their old age than in their youth, 
that older people would know more about state and city politics than young. This faith has been abandoned, for nowadays most people want to reduce the age at which they are eligible to stand for parliamentary elections as far as possible because they have faith in life only until their early twenties. However, life demands of us that we have faith in it as a whole, that we believe our development continues all through our whole life. Imagine how differently we would relate to each other if we knew that we are developing throughout our whole life, how differently young people would treat their elders if they were steeped in this realization. Imagine the moral impulses and the different quality of consciousness you would have if you knew at every stage of your life that you are just a greenhorn, for example, at thirty or thirty-five, and that getting older is a thing of hope because you expect it will bring you something that you cannot have in your youth. Just imagine with what zest for life and vitality you'd live if this realization would permeate your whole life. Then, even just before your death, you would see that you can't advance far enough in this life to reflect everything life offers you into your consciousness, and so you'll decide to carry something of that through death into the next life and people who believe in the dead will then approach you and allow you to advise and counsel them. Well, as you can imagine, these days we are considered stupid and foolish when we proclaim this truth, which has to become a practical principle in human life in the future. Seriously, all parliaments the world over would make wiser decisions if the dead were advising them. That is, decisions and laws would be better if, in addition to the opinions of greenhorns in their thirties, people would also consider what Goethe, for example, or other dead individuals older than a hundred years would say about the issues at hand. This way of thinking must become a practical reality in the future. These days certain so-called secret societies make much of preserving and using many ancient symbols. In truth, they would do better to work on understanding their own time and to devote themselves to researching the advice of the dead. That would be so much more important and meaningful. For humanity cannot advance unless it is steeped in the realization that the divine spiritual realm works in our development throughout our whole life we're not finished developing when we've reached our twenties. As I've pointed out before, in ancient times people could still feel their soul and spirit developing as they felt the physical development of their body over the course of their life. That is, in very ancient times, people felt the development of their soul and spirit going along with and indeed dependent on that of their physical body, and they felt that way into their forties and fifties. Nowadays, people feel the soul's spiritual development going hand in hand with the physical one only up until puberty, or at most into their early twenties. 
However, if we remain capable of development beyond that, we will find that around age 35, as our physical body begins to decline, our spiritual forces develop particularly strongly, but only if we have allowed them to sprout with the help of spiritual science. In the past, older people were respected and revered because everyone realized that they knew something that could not yet be revealed to the younger generation. As I pointed out before, these days humanity is getting ever younger. For example, in the ancient Indian culture, people remained capable of development well into their fifties. And in the ancient Persian culture, they continued developing into their forties. In contrast, in the Egypto-Chaldean culture, this development lasted until people were in the second half of their thirties, and in the Greco-Roman culture, until they reached thirty-five. When the Greco-Roman culture came to an end in the fifteenth century, people remained capable of development only until age twenty-eight, and today the period of development ends at age twenty-seven. Based on these insights, the prototypical individual of our time is one who completely refuses any soul impulse toward spiritual development, who only accepts what comes to him from the outer world, from what the present time offers. In other words, the person who unites all the characteristics of our era in himself is one who has not attended an intellectual lyceum where pupils study the past and receive impulses for their soul development. Instead, such a prototypical person has merely taken in the impressions from the outer world, that is, the impressions and feelings we can experience in the present. He is a self-made man, and from seven, eight, or nine years of age, he grows up with a certain aversion to the privileged classes. He is the sort of person who will not raise his hat to people with aristocratic titles or any other sort of power. Accordingly, he does not attend a school where Greek and Latin are taught, but instead learns from life itself. Eventually he gets a kind of lawyer-type job, again not by studying for the bar, but by struggling through practical training in a law office. Until age twenty-seven, he takes in whatever the present time brings him, that is, nothing that is taken from revisiting the culture of the past. By age twenty-seven, he would have to stand for parliamentary elections and then present himself to his contemporaries much the way he has developed himself until that point, as a self-made man with no faith in further development. Once elected to Parliament, he can then run for the ministerial post. According to the current prevailing opinion, development would be completely out of place in such a position, because if the candidate developed further, people might see any changes in his views as contradictions and accuse him of being inconsistent and fickle. That is, once elected to Parliament, Politicians must stick to their opinion and can't change it if they don't want to be accused of flip-flopping. 
You may wonder if such a prototypical person actually exists. Indeed he does. His name is Lloyd George. Of course, people's idiosyncrasies, their true inner nature, cannot be understood unless we examine it from the perspective I've presented here. Then we will see that Lloyd George is a self-made man, and until age twenty-seven has taken in only what our present time provides, and because he lacks any impulse for soul development, he stops taking in anything new at that age. At that age he's elected to Parliament, where he takes his place, sitting with his arms folded across his chest and his eyes turned slightly inward, and speaks very much to the point, while watching his opponents closely for any signs of weakness. Then in the Campbell-Bannerman administration the question was what to do with Lloyd George, a man who criticizes everything the administration does. So what solution was decided on? It was decided to make Lloyd George a minister, and thus part of the administration, a position from which he can't mount much of an opposition anymore. Accordingly, Lloyd George takes the ministerial post and in very short order fully adapts to his new role and is at home in it. After all, he is a true representative of our time. Of course, the question then was what portfolio to entrust to him based on his talents and abilities. And after some deliberation, it was decided to give a portfolio he didn't know anything about, that of public works. But, lo and behold, within only three months he had become thoroughly familiar with that area and has since done great things as Minister of Public Works, a field he had known nothing about before. You see that Lloyd George clearly typifies our time, and he's not the only such figure. All of them have taken in everything their surroundings offer until their twenty-seventh year. That's the cut-off point. And have then entered public life and stopped developing further. One of those figures you may be more familiar with is Matthias Erzberger, whose biography is remarkably similar to that of Lloyd George, once we study the two in the esoteric way I've described here. It's an odd historical phenomenon, and the esoteric study of the human soul must become part of humanity's future development for a true understanding of the culture of our era. Indeed, our time in particular demands of us to delve more deeply into these things than most people are, that, that most people are uncomfortable with. To meet this demand of our time, we must allow the dead a voice in our decisions, a fact that will, of course, be rejected outright by those people who most typify our time. In contrast, to study a person who embodied the ongoing striving for further development and the unconscious faith that a divine human reality lives in us until death, we have to look at Goethe, who typified all this even more than is generally believed. Goethe's aim was twofold to take in what the outer world offered in his early years and also to continue developing. In title Dichtung und Wahrheit, 
autobiography, truth and fiction relating to my life, he described his early years up to the move to Weimar. Born in 1749, Goethe moved to Weimar in 1775. That is, his memoirs cover the first 26 years of his life and end shortly before his 27th, because he knew unconsciously that this is an important turning point. These days we experience a similar turning point at age 35, but most of us sleep right through it. This is the moment when our rising, unfolding life begins to decline as far as the physical body is concerned, and precisely then our spirit is compelled to reveal itself more and more. (laughs) Clearly our thirty-fifth year is a very important one. It is the year we give birth to our soul in our physical body. For Goethe, who retained the capacity for further development throughout his life, this meant that shortly after his thirty-fifth year, in 1786, he left for Italy until age forty-two. When you study his biography more closely, you'll see that this was a major turning point for him. In an essay that will now be published in a small book, the essay entitled, quote, Goethe's Spirit as it is revealed in his Faust and in his fairy tale of the snake and the lily, close quote, I've established Goethe's personal relationship to his Faust, or at least provided some indications for it. Particularly in regard to this topic, much of what is generally written about Goethe is more confusing and misleading than enlightening. Many people refer with smug gravity to Faust's introductory lines, quote, Have now, alas, quite studied through philosophy and medicine and law and, ah, theology too, with hot desire the truth to win. And here, at last, I stand, poor fool, as wise as when I entered school. Close quote. People smugly and almost gleefully point out that Faust studied all four disciplines and still didn't get anywhere, but doubts all knowledge. Especially the actors studying that role often feel they must disdain the four disciplines, but that is not what is typically and characteristically Goethean here. It's only the very beginning, as many of Goethe's contemporaries used to say. When the true Goethean element appears in Faust, namely when Faust picks up the book of Nostradamus and first sees the sign of the macrocosm, then things change. This symbol, after all, shows what the place of human beings in the macrocosm is. The relationship of our spirit to the spirit of the world, of our soul to the soul of the world, and of our physical body to the physical world. All that is represented in the big picture of the buckets within buckets that flow into each other, of planets and suns and hierarchies ruling them. However, Faust turns away, saying, Majestic show, but ah, a show alone. That is, he sees only pictures, a show or spectacle, because he wants to comprehend the mystery of the world that moment, in one instant. Faust wants in an instant what in the physical world can only be attained over the course of a lifetime, if at all. 
Knowledge cannot give us anything but pictures or images. And that is why Faust turns to the sign of the microcosm, where he finds not the spirit of the macrocosm, but only the earth spirit, the spirit of human history on earth, that describes itself in these words, quote, In life's tide currents, in action's storm, up and down like a wave, like the wind I sweep. What Faust is seeking, with the help of the earth spirit, is self-knowledge, not knowledge of the world. And this is the true Goethean moment in the drama. The preceding parts are merely leading up to that point. As a young man, Goethe arrived at the conclusion that everything related to the macrocosm provides only images and remains ultimately impenetrable. However, the answer to the mystery of life can be found only inside. Thus, when the earth spirit declares, quote, Thou art like the spirit thou canst comprehend, not me, close quote, Faust collapses. After all, what is that spirit he resembles? Faust offers us the rare opportunity to study a poet who does not just theorize, Goethe does not limit himself to theory, but presents vividly and artistically how things really are. Thus the above-quoted lines are followed by Wagner's knocking and entering. In other words, here is the answer. Faust is like Wagner, not like the earth spirit. This passage in Faust, in particular, must be reconsidered. It should not be staged the way it usually is, with Faust as the man striving for higher ideals, struggling to ascend to the spirit, the man who is right at all costs. And then Wagner comes hobbling in. If I were to direct the play, I would have Wagner wear Faust's mask, so that both look alike because the point of the scene is to make Faust see, quote, here stands your spitting image, you are no farther advanced than he is, close quote. And indeed Wagner's lines at this point are logically consistent and make sense while Faust's words are only longings and yearnings. However, Faust, scholars and others too, want to have things as easy and convenient as possible, and so don't look at this scene closely enough. Thus, they like to quote Faust's lines, quote, All comes at last to feeling. Name is but sound and smoke, beclouding heaven's warm glow. Quote. Forgetting that Faust is saying this to a sixteen-year-old girl. In other words, pearls of wisdom designed for a teenager are taken as a philosophical truth. In this first scene, then, Wagner comes to Faust for the latter's self-knowledge. As I said, all this is explained in more detail in my little book. Yet, Faust has been touched already by the Spirit, for the earth spirit appeared to him. Thus, Faust has had a small taste of the spiritual. Now he cannot rest until he advances further and makes up for what he failed to do in his first forty years. At the beginning of the play, Faust is forty years old. That is when he looks back 
on what he has failed to do in his youth and sees he misses much and sees he missed much, including the Bible. And then he encounters a different kind of self-knowledge than what Wagner offered when he meets Mephistopheles. Something odd happened then, when, in the nineties, in 1797, Schiller urged Goethe to continue his Faust. In 1797, Goethe was forty-eight years old, another significant moment in a person's life. Seven times seven is forty-nine, and that is the age when we move beyond the development of our own individual spirit self into the spirit of life. Schiller urged Goethe to get to work, but people have generally found an easier explanation for the facts. For example, for example, Jacob Minor wrote an interesting book about Goethe and explained that Goethe was simply getting old and thus no longer as capable of writing poetry. However, if this were the case, then Faust could never be written in the first place for then it would not be possible to represent human life in later years, and when we meet Faust in the play, he is already getting a bit long in the tooth, after all. When Goethe was struggling with continuing his Faust, he was at the age that the ancient Indians believed to be the age at which people are finally old enough to ascend to the realm of their forefathers, and to penetrate gradually deeper and deeper into the mysteries of spiritual life. That is the moment when Goethe encountered his Mephisto in a peculiar way. As you know, there are two forces opposing us, Araman and Lucifer. Goethe confounded and combined them without realizing it at the time, and that is why Mephisto is an ambiguous, contradictory figure as many details in the tragedy show. Mephisto is thus actually a combination of Araman and Lucifer, and Goethe did not realize this until 1797, and that's why he found it so difficult to continue his Faust. At that time, spiritual science had not yet advanced sufficiently to be able to split humanity's opponent into two, and so Goethe used only one. We learn much about the nature of Goethe from the fact that he should have created two figures opposing Faust, but instead merged the two into one, and he had to endure a certain inner turmoil regarding the contradictory character of Mephisto. That Faust was nevertheless completed and is a literary masterpiece is, of course, due to Goethe's poetic genius, and this, too, is something Goethe found surging up in him from out of his subconscious. From all this you can see that we can remain capable of further development beyond our twenties, and that we can feel, in a very elementary way in our soul, what is working within us, together with the Spirit throughout our whole life. Interestingly, Goethe didn't write the part of Faust that we know as Prologue in Heaven until 1798. 
Goethe did not explicitly say what motivated him there, but he has Faust once again pick up a book, and this time Faust encounters the spirit. It's not just a show anymore, but now Faust sees the spirits weaving in the spheres and finds himself in the midst of the macrocosmic struggle between good and evil. In other words, we should not read Faust as though everything in the tragedy were of equal significance, or read the whole play with the same attitude. Instead, we can see where Goethe broke with the worldview of his youth and led Faust deeper and deeper into the spirit of the macrocosm. This also shows you how orderly and steadily Goethe's life developed and unfolded. In fact, Goethe's life shows us clearly how human life progresses toward death in developmental phases of seven years each. This is one example of how we must increasingly raise the subconscious to consciousness. Of course, we have to proceed in a way that is appropriate to the spirit of our time. There's a lot of talk these days about the subconscious but it is not properly understood or seen in the right way. Analytical psychology and psychoanalysis are trying to control and manage the subconscious spiritual soul element in us, but with inadequate means. Only spiritual science provides adequate means for understanding the subconscious. The cases psychoanalysts so often mention to explain their work reveal precisely how inadequate their approach is. For example, let's assume, to use a basic psychoanalytic case, a woman meets a married man and develops a relationship with him that he liked but his wife didn't like. Lo and behold, for many reasons, among them very likely also her husband's female friend, the wife gets sick and develops various nervous troubles, as so many people do nowadays. Indeed, it's not surprising that she fell ill, considering how common it is for people nowadays to develop neurasthenia. Now, the wife decides to spend a few months at a health spa to recover, and on the evening of her departure, a small dinner party is arranged, to which the husband's female friend, who is essentially a friend of the whole family, is also invited. The dinner runs smoothly, and the moment arrives when the lady of the house has to leave to catch her train. The company disperses. People are going home. A group of guests, however, walks out to the street with the woman, who is such close friends with the husband of the house. As often happens late at night in quiet neighborhoods, people don't stay on the sidewalk, but walk in the middle of the street. Suddenly a carriage, a hackney cab, comes racing around the corner, and while all the others jump out of the way, back onto the sidewalk, the woman, who is such good friends with that husband, keeps running as fast as she can in front of the horses instead. The coachman curses and yells and cracks his whip, but the woman seems oblivious and just keeps running as the horses dash after her. Finally, they come to a bridge, and she realizes the danger, 
and in a split second decides to save herself by jumping into the river. She saves herself by jumping off the bridge. Ultimately, she is pulled out of the water and rescued. And the other guests who had followed her carry her back to the house. Because of her condition, she has to spend the night there in the house of her married friend. All the other guests leave, but she has to stay there. In this way, something is brought about that I don't want to talk about in more detail now. However, psychoanalysts study this case looking for hidden psychological motives. Among other theories, they consider, they also speculate that perhaps that woman had a traumatic experience with horses in her childhood when she was seven or eight years old. Perhaps that experience reverberated through her soul and overpowered her so that she lost consciousness due to a fear of horses. This is how psychoanalysts are searching out, quote, lost regions in the soul, close quote. However, the truth is quite different. The truth is that our subconscious is cleverer and craftier than our consciousness, and the woman I've been telling you about was a very respectable lady, but she was in love with a married man. Her waking consciousness would not have allowed her to admit that she wanted to stay in his house, but her subconscious did so easily, and figured out to the last detail that if she keeps running in front of the horses and then jumps off the bridge, people will bring her back to that man's house. That is what she achieves by her actions that night, after the carriage thunders around the corner. Of course, in her normal consciousness she would never have admitted this, but her subconscious can admit such desires and design a plan to realize them. In other words, our subconscious is much wiser and much more crafty than our rational consciousness, for better or worse. As I've said, the subconscious is gaining some notoriety these days, but people generally employ inadequate means to approach it. We must realize that only spiritual science can give us what is needed to show that in addition to the capital I that lives in our body, we also have within us an eternal spiritual element, one that is not just angelic, but can also be very cunning depending on its karma. Spiritual science studies how the subconscious reveals itself through us, and it is now more important than ever that these things are understood as they really are, that the truth about them is known. In our time, the subconscious knocks more and more frequently on the door of our consciousness, so to speak, and we will not be able to cope well with life if we ignore the paths our subconscious takes rather than exploring them with our consciousness. Many people don't want to engage in this exploration, and that is why they shy away from spiritual science. Thus, there are several reasons why people avoid spiritual science. One is that they don't want to accept that everything is really different, upside down, so to speak, regarding our relationship with the dead. To establish and understand such relationships, we have to rethink everything. 
For example, in ordinary life we hear the words coming out of our mouth when we say something. But when we're communicating with the dead, everything we say really flows out of the dead soul. Conversely, what the dead say to us comes up from within us. All this is perfectly natural. Another reason why people shy away from spiritual science is their antagonistic attitude to the spirit, largely because they don't want to admit how close the spiritual is to their consciousness, in how many places it is knocking at the door of our consciousness. For example, in people deviating a bit from the norm, the spiritual soul element is relaxed and loosened in their physical body and as a result their subconscious enters their consciousness more strongly and in the right way than in people without such a loosening. This doesn't mean that we should aim for such a loosening, definitely not, but it happens naturally in some people, as in Otto Weininger, for example. Weininger was a truly gifted person and earned his doctorate when he was only in his early twenties. Then he reworked his dissertation into a book entitled Sex and Character, an Investigation of Fundamental Principles. It is an amateurish and in many respects trivial book, but still remarkable. After completion of the book, Weiniger traveled to Italy and kept a diary of his journey that is filled with all sorts of strange entries. Certain insights of spiritual science are presented there in the form of caricatures. The loosened spiritual soul element can see and understand many things, but tends to turn them into caricatures. And often we also find a certain erosion of morals in people like that. Nevertheless, Weininger was a genius. At the age of twenty-three, he rented a room in the house where Beethoven used to live, and there Weininger shot himself. This shows that he was quite abnormal. In his last book there is a strange passage in which Weiniger explains that people don't remember their life before birth because the soul has become so degenerate that it wants to lull itself into unconsciousness where the previous life is concerned. I mention this example and I could cite thousands more to show you that there are many people who are actually very close to spiritual science but still cannot find their way to it because our modern world doesn't want people to come to spiritual science. Weiniger is an ideal example, because in him the spiritual soul element was loosened enough so he could accept, as a matter of course, that within us a spiritual soul nature unites itself with our physical body. That is, Weininger could take for granted and talk about what many people nowadays can speak about only bashfully, if at all. And developing such courage and strength to face the spiritual world in all its concrete forms is indeed one of our fundamental tasks in our time. One such concrete form that I wanted to talk about especially is that we need to let the dead have a say in our life. In addition, it is essential 
that how we live together is shaped by the differences we feel among ourselves based on age, by the realization that we change as we age. On that basis we can then develop faith in our life as a whole. After all, God does not stop revealing himself to us once we are out of our twenties. In earlier times, that revelation was a physical one, but now we must feel our way to God through spiritual science. For this it is essential that we believe in the gifts from the divine spiritual world and are supported inwardly through our whole life by the encouraging sense that as we get older we can bring something to the divine spiritual realm that it can then accept differently than it did before. As you can imagine, it will make a great difference to be able to approach the future with such hope and expectation. Indeed, our whole way of living together, our social structures, will be as though covered with a new soul-spiritual aura, an aura we urgently need as we prepare for the future. All this is of the utmost importance. Therefore, let yourself fully feel and absorb how urgently changes must come. Our time demands that many things change. In particular, we must let go of our old hypocritical way of seeing things and instead see them for what they really are. It's pointless to deceive ourselves with lies about anything. And now I'd like to talk about one such self-deception in particular. These days, many people claim to revere and worship not the various hierarchies, the angels, archangels, and so on, but what they call, quote, my God, close quote. And they prize the, pride themselves on what they call humanity's great progress in having arrived at monotheism, the faith in one God. However, we cannot help but wonder who people are really turning to in their attempts to establish a concrete relationship to the spiritual world and who they mean by my God. Whether Catholic or Protestant, when we talk about God, we all refer only to what our consciousness can actually comprehend, namely to one of two things, our guardian angel or our own I. Capital. That is, in actuality, we are worshipping our guardian angel, each of us has one with the task to protect us, and calling it God. Or, we are worshipping our own I, all the while deceiving ourselves, because everyone has his or her unique angel, and we call all of them, or our own unique I, by the same name, that of God. In this context, it's important to remember that the one word, whose origin we don't know, despite all our research, is that very word God. That's food for thought, and should interest us very much. You can look up the word in all kinds of dictionaries that offer linguistic and philological background information on words, and you'll find there's no certainty or consensus about the word God. In other words, people don't know what they mean by the word God. Essentially, they can only mean either their angel or their own I. 
In the latter case, they become unconscious followers, so to speak, of our spiritual science, because they are actually talking about their I as it has developed in the period between their previous death and the birth into their current life. Concretely, then, people use the name God either for their angel, it's only an angel but they call it God, or for their own individual I. No matter how we try to reinterpret this, basically we find such an egotistical religion in many souls these days, but people don't want to admit it. Ultimately, spiritual science alone will make this clear to us, and as a result, People will hate spiritual science and fight it because they find it convenient to call what is directly above them in the hierarchical order by the name of God. Basically, all the talk about God these days is really only about people's own eye or their angel. To get beyond this mistaken view of the hierarchies, we must adopt spiritual science in a concrete way and this will become ever more urgent and important to understand as we prepare for the future. Above all, we must have truth. Truth will be even more important in the future than now, and indeed we don't find much truth in our times. Truth is a rare commodity these days. Particularly in scholarly disciplines, some strange notions of truth prevail. For example, as I've described in my book, Riddles of the Soul, if I may mention this here briefly, Max Dessoir, a rather peculiar fellow, has a strange way of dealing with the truth. Reading about him in the most recent issue of the title Kant Studies can break one's heart. I can talk about this because anthroposophy isn't mentioned at all in that essay, and thus it does not hurt us. Nevertheless, it is sad to find an essay that is so amateurish and banal not just where anthroposophy is concerned, but through and through. In that scholarly journal, in quotes, and see that it is taken seriously. As I've explained in my book, we can prove step by step, indeed with Dessoir, that's the only way possible, that he has not read my books, but misrepresents and perverts them. To mention just one of the most stupid distortions, in the first edition of his book, titled Vom Jenseits der Seele, translation from the dar- far side of the soul, Dessoir claims that qu- my title, Philosophy of Freedom, was my first book. As you know, that book was published in 1894, ten years after my first book. This just goes to show how perfunctory and careless Dessoir is, not just on this subject, but in everything. Among more important things, I've also pointed out this mistake to him to show him his carelessness. Now, in the preface to the second edition of his book, Dessoir explains a number of things that show what kind of person this university professor really is. For example, he claims that in his first edition he didn't mean to say that The Philosophy of Freedom is my first book, but only that it is my first theosophical book. When you consider this claim in light of how other people see that same philosophy of freedom as repudiated by my theosophy, you'll get a glimpse of the quagmire all around us. Such things are very revealing and show us clearly the true nature of our present time.
It is obviously of the utmost importance to understand these things, and we can do so only if we openly arm ourselves with the weapons of spiritual science. Among other things, spiritual science will change our approach to history, for history, as conventionally taught, is actually nothing more than a fabrication. Once we really understand the facts based on our spiritual science, we will find that they are quite different from what the history textbooks want to make us believe. For example, just to mention one point, please bear with me. It will be clear to you later where I am going with this. We know that the fourth post-Atlantean epoch ended in the 15th century. That is, the last remnants of the Greco-Roman period vanished sometime in the 1400s. In 1413, at a major historical turning point, the fifth post-Atlantean epoch began. In light of these facts, we have to wonder what caused the fall of the Roman Empire, the last stronghold of Greco-Roman culture. There are many causes, but one of the most important is the following. As you know, the Romans waged many extensive wars that gradually expanded the empire's territory beyond its initial borders. As a result, more and more peoples and ethnic minorities became part of the empire. As we'll find if we study the early Christian centuries, the consequence of the close contact between the Roman Empire and the peoples at its borders, especially in the East, contact that impacted administrative and social structures, was that money in the form of metal coins began flowing continuously from the empire out toward the Orient. In other words, one of the most important events in the first four Christian centuries is that coins streamed out of the empire into the Orient, and this is one of the reasons for the Roman Empire's gradual decline and eventual fall. In the process, the Roman Empire, despite its complex military administration, was getting poorer and poorer in terms of gold and coin. Of course, this is the outer expression of inner processes, and I'm talking about this outer image of increasing impoverishment in gold and coin only because it is the outer expression or symptom of a soul mood. That soul mood was of great historical significance because something was to develop out of the Roman Empire's growing shortage of precious metals, namely the individualism that is the outstanding feature of our time. People talked often about the art of making gold, largely because the shortage of gold in Europe awakened a great physical longing for the art of making it. Then the American continent was discovered and gold from there was brought back to Europe. We really must understand these vast contexts and realize that the decline and fall of the Roman Empire affected even alchemy, and thus the development of the human soul, and all of it was due to a shortage of money caused by expanding the empire's social structures beyond the peoples at its borders and into the Orient. We are now living in times when we have to face the fact that we can no longer live by our instincts alone. We cannot renew our social structures unless we stimulate our thinking about social issues with thoughts based on an understanding of the spiritual world. As it is now, our social sciences are sterile and lifeless. We have maneuvered ourselves into catastrophic times, 
and all over the world our social structures and institutions are in chaos. All of this could have been prevented if we had allowed spiritual scientific ideas to flow into our development and thinking on social issues, if we had allowed spiritual science to shape the foundations of our society. In other words, there are spiritual causes for the catastrophe of our present time, and the main one is humanity's rebellion against the influence of the Spirit. That is, in reality, what brought about the current catastrophe, for people everywhere rebel against the Spirit that wants to work in us. For example, one way to classify the various worldviews and beliefs is based on external differences. Thus we come up with Catholicism, Protestantism, Socialism, Naturalism, and so on. Another way to classify them is the one I presented in my talks in Berlin some time ago, namely on the basis of inner categories, primarily the numbers 12 and 7. Then we'll find there are really seven worldviews, Gnosis, Logicism, Voluntarism, Empiricism, Mysticism, Transcendentalism, and Esotericism. Of course, people who merely casually pick up a worldview or two will not use those names. And yet the music of the spheres prevails everywhere and in everything. Accordingly, even a purely materialistic observer, counting the number of worldviews, would have to come up with seven of them. He may not call them by their right names, but use names based on how they appear on the outside. Still, he'd have to come up with the sum of seven. Indeed, the first article in the current issue of the Preußischer Jahrbücher, Prussian yearbooks, offers the results of an attempt to list and classify all worldviews now in existence, and how many are in the list, in his list. Indeed, he lists seven, Catholicism, Protestantism, Rationalism, Humanism, Idealism, Socialism, and Personal Individualism, seven in all. Though these categories are slightly skewed from ours, the sum is inevitably the same, namely seven. This is an example of how the meaning in our development influences ordinary outer developments and conditions. For the most part, people don't want to admit this, but it is of utmost importance for our time to acknowledge this. We must not bury our head in the sand, but have the courage to face these facts. Interesting developments are taking place in our time. In ancient times, in the third post-Atlantean epoch, an impulse emanated from the Orient, reached the West, and spread over the whole globe. A radical impulse, not derived as most are today, from material life only, but coming directly from the spiritual realm. Back then, spiritual impulses also influenced how people lived together. Then a certain impulse developed that moved from the East to the West. It manifested in the desire in some people to pass unto others what they had received through many years of experience or through initiation into mysteries, both good and bad. Essentially, they wanted to impose on others what they had acquired. The impulse emanating from the East and moving westward thus was focused on spreading a few spiritual forces among people everywhere for the sake of humanity's progress. 
the world was to be filled gradually with a few spiritual dictums and forces derived from fading mysteries. All social structures were geared to that goal, and since all this happened in the third post-Atlantean epoch, there are few historical documents or records left of it. However, what is happening now, in our time, is essentially a recapitulation of what occurred back then. For example, the push from east to west has now, in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, been transformed into something purely material. In contrast, back then, atavistic spiritual powers shaped social structures that would allow humanity to receive strong spiritual impulses that were necessary for our development. In other words, back then, humanity was to receive something spiritual. In contrast, now some people want to conquer the material realm of the earth on their own initiative and take it away from others. As a result, so and so many years after the mystery of Golgotha, certain catastrophes occurred. In the process, the Roman Empire fell, and that was the time when spiritual catastrophes befell humanity, and certain nations in the East wanted to flood the world with their various dictums. Something very similar is happening now. The Anglo-American people want to take the earth away from all the rest of humankind. That's what's behind the events of our time. And it is a mirror image of what happened in the past, the same except going in the opposite direction. In fact, we cannot really understand what's going on in our time unless we consider humanity's true developmental history rather than being content with what the history textbooks tell us. More than ever before, it is essential that our future, for our future, that people become fully aware of what is really happening and find their rightful place within it. The modern economy has long since been in chaos, and that has led to the current catastrophe. There are two major influences on the situation. First, from west to east, the mirror image of what happened in the past and second from east to west, the stream of outdated and obsolete knowledge and culture. In this latter stream we find vestiges of the ancient spiritual outlook of the Asian Orient, everything people did in those times to spread the spiritual element and integrate it into their lives. A closer look at our current catastrophe will reveal a war of the souls coming from the east, where souls fight for recognition of Oriental and Slavic concepts. At the same time, from west to east, a purely material war for markets is raging. To understand these things, we must look at them from the perspective of the larger context of humanity's development, and it is important to speak about these things freely. That is, people should be told about what is really happening in the world they live in, it is of the utmost importance to realize the truth. By the same token, we must stop sleeping through what is going on. Currently, people no longer understand even the most important events of our time and can no longer grasp their significance because these things can be understood only in the light of spiritual science. They cannot be comprehended in any other way. Once we've realized all this, 
We may wonder what scholars and scientists think of spiritual science these days. A very informative example of this is the book by Oskar Hertwig that I've mentioned before. Hertwig, a student and follower of Ernst Haeckel, wrote an excellent book entitled Das Werden der Organismen, eine Widerlegung der Darwinschen Zufallslehre, title, uh, translation The Origin of Organisms, a refutation of Darwin's theory of chance, in which he pointed out various flaws in Darwinism, which I have often praised highly. However, in our spiritual movement, We have to abandon blind trust in any kind of authority. Accordingly, now that Hertwig has published a second book, you should not assume that just because I praised his previous one, the second one is worth studying too. On the contrary, you'll find this book, entitled Zur Abwehr des ethischen, sozialen und politischen Darwinismus, against Darwinism in ethics, society and politics, is disappointing. While his previous book is excellent, the new one is the worst collection of amateurish and nonsensical things that could possibly be said on the topic. Thus you can't simply go by what I said about the previous book and take it as gospel, for I may have to assign the opposite labels to another book written on the same basis. There's no place here for blind trust in authority. What matters is that you develop your own understanding and insight, your own opinion. The problem in this particular case is that Hertwig is an outstanding natural scientist, but the concepts of the natural sciences cannot be applied to social relations and structures. If we try to apply them, we find nothing in history but what is already dead or dying, as Gibbon did when he wrote his masterful history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. One of the mysteries of historical development, as I've explained before, is that the concepts of the natural sciences will never lead us to insight into what is growing and unfolding, but only point us to what is decaying or a corpse already. Concepts that work well in the natural sciences are of no use in history, except for talking about symptoms of decline. At various times in the past, people have sensed this. For example, Treitschke, claimed that people's passions and foolish ideas are the real driving forces of history. Of course, that is not true. Rather, unconscious forces descend in the course of historical development, and therefore the obvious way to bring decline into public and thus practical life is to fill the parliaments with scholars and theorists. The laws these people will make cannot result in anything but symptoms of decline, because what is accepted these days in the sciences will only allow us to find such signs of decline in history. It is very important to become aware of this, more important even than most people realize. Such awareness is essential if we're honest and sincere about what can bring humanity out of the current catastrophic times. It will no longer do to sleep right through important events that enter our life outside our awareness, events we won't be able to deal with consciously unless we see them in the light of spiritual science. It's a matter of grasping life in its reality and seeking life as it really is, 
That is why we need to look at how the normal human, the luciferic, and the aramonic impulses work together. For we cannot simply decide to be merely normal persons and thus avoid everything luciferic and aramonic. Indeed, those who want to be particularly good and upright and to avoid everything luciferic and aramonic are most likely to stumble now into the luciferic, now into the aramonic sphere. After all, it's not a matter of avoiding those two impulses, but of keeping them in balance. Young people, in particular, have a strong tendency to the luciferic sphere, while adults in their waning years are more drawn toward the aramonic. Similarly, women tend more to the luciferic and men more to the aramonic impulse. And when we think about the future, our minds are focused on Araman's sphere. When we think about the past, looking for what was then only germinating, we are looking into Lucifer's realm. The British Empire belongs to the Aramonic region, while the Oriental nations belong to the Luciferic. What's important here is to see that these forces are entering our life everywhere. We must not be blind to these things. For example, in our social structures, the Luciferic element has at times played a disastrous role because people didn't know how to channel and direct it properly and allowed that element to get the upper hand and predominate. As a result, the Luciferic impulse played an important role in the development of our social structures. Among other things, this led to schools drilling even very young children in competing to be first, second, or at least third. You can imagine the Luciferic ambition involved when people want to become the leader or the best in their class. It's the same for all titles, medals, and the like. You can easily see how strongly our social structures are influenced by the Luciferic element. And yet, what we must realize is that the time for this kind of ambition is coming to an end. The Luciferic element, especially its darker aspects, will gradually wane at least for the near future, and it behooves us to pay attention to its fading. However, people generally don't notice what is taking the place of the Luciferic element, namely the Aramonic, which in its own way is just as detrimental. The slogan of the day is now, quote, Let ability win through, close quote. But as I've often said, this motto is of little use if people still find their relatives or friends the most able for the job, clearly we should not be swayed by abstract slogans, but must look at how things are concretely, in reality. However, my point here is that an aramonic system, with all its dangerous side effects, is developing and gaining ground. This system is connected with the attitude embodied in the above-mentioned motto, and in schools it finds expression in so-called aptitude testing, which is widely praised. People talk about all this with such excitement as if possessed by a demon. Aptitude tests are to find the most able and gifted students among a certain number, 100, let's say, of intelligent boys and girls who are getting good grades. The tests use the most cutting-edge psychological methods to test the students' for their intellectual ability, concentration, memory, and so on. For example, experimental psychology has devised a very strange intelligence test 
in which the children are given three terms, murderer, mirror, rescue, and they have to use their intelligence to find the connection between them. Those who come up with something like, quote, the murderer sees himself in the mirror just like everyone else, close quote. Well, they're just stupid. However, those children who find the most obvious, in quotes, connection, namely, quote, a person looks into the mirror, sees the murderer sneaking up on him, and can thus save himself, close quote. Now, those are normal. Gifted children, on the other hand, would come up with something like, quote, the murderer creeps up to the mirror, sees his face in it, is horrified, and decides not to commit the murder, close quote. However, the truly and especially gifted ones would say something even cleverer, quote, There is a mirror near the intended victim, and in the darkness the murderer bumps into the mirror and makes a noise. He then gives up on committing the murder. Close quote. This is how aptitude tests are done, and they're supposed to be so grand, but are really nothing more than the application of a purely aramonic method, which is designed for machines to human beings. Trying to determine aptitude and giftedness this way will, inevitably, lead to the most awful effects for our life, in particular to a growing mechanization of human life. For a different perspective, we need only recall what we used to believe not all that long ago. Then we can easily see that people are talking nonsense when they advocate such tests. For example, many people now considered outstanding and important and admired, even by testing enthusiasts, among them the physicist Hermann von Helmholtz, would have been found not gifted and lacking in aptitude if they had been tested in the way I've described. We must take these things seriously, because our future well-being depends on them. We must not be content with empty phrases but must learn the lessons the events themselves teach us. For example, in the future, say in the decade from 1930 to 1940, a number of people will be in their 40s or early 50s. Now imagine in 1913 you had thought that of the people alive in 1913, a certain number will still be alive in 1930, and some of them will then be in leading positions in society. They will shape our social structures and our outer physical life in many parts of the world. You can imagine what the decade of the 1930s will be like when those who are 18 or 20 now will be in their 40s. Now we have to take into account that many of those people who would have done what we've envisioned happening in the 30s have died on the battlefields and can no longer be physically involved in managing the affairs of our physical world here. Others will have to take their place. In other words, we can envision two versions of the future and look at them side by side. The future image in which the catastrophe of war had been averted and everything you envisioned in 1913 for the future has come true. And the other future in which many or perhaps all people who could have held leading positions in the 1930s have died on the battlefields in this war. Contemplating these two images will give you a palpable sense of Maya, the great illusion of the outer physical plane. After all, the physical world in 1930 
will not be the same as it would have been if all those who were young in 1913 had survived. Things would be very different then. It is very important to think about these things, but we can think about them realistically and concretely only with the help of spiritual science. Only with spiritual science can we develop concepts that are no longer bound to our physical brain, but go beyond it. Currently, most of our concepts are bound to our physical brain, and that gives a certain characteristic cast to our modern thinking. Because natural scientific concepts, which are especially closely bound to our physical brain, prevail these days, our modern thinking has a special character. It is narrow-minded and parochial. For thinking that is particularly bound to our brain is generally the most narrow-minded. It is up to spiritual science to free our thinking from its bondage to the brain, to get our thoughts moving again. For example, I have presented a number of thoughts to you here today that move nimbly and expand our horizon. However, not only the horizon of our thoughts, but also that of our feelings must be expanded. Sadly, people have become such Philistines as a result of their thoughts being closely bound to their physical life. In addition to parochialism, Philistinism is a primary trait of our time. Really, most people nowadays think only about what's directly in front of them and are only interested in their own small circle and petty concerns. In contrast, spiritual science will lead us out into the vast expanse of the universe and will unveil to us the larger contexts of events because only on that basis can we understand our present time. Spiritual science must lead us out of Philistinism and fight against parochialism and bigotry. Indeed, even our will has gradually been affected, and as a result of certain social structures that have developed on the basis of our materialistic culture, people have become increasingly clumsy and inept. Clumsiness and awkwardness have taken hold of many. For example, people are sorted into specializations and soon know nothing outside their special area of skill or knowledge. That is, in regard to everything else they are clumsy, awkward, and inept. Thus we encounter men nowadays who cannot sew buttons on their pants because they are not tailors by trade. In contrast, spiritual science develops concepts that are alive and enter into our limbs, and thus they make us more adept and skilled. Basically, spiritual science is the antidote to parochialism, philistinism, and ineptness. What we need now more than ever is a new age that leads us out of narrow-mindedness, pettiness, and ineptitude toward wider horizons, generosity, and skillfulness. To that end, we must become engaged in spiritual science with heartfelt zeal. Indeed, even the most basic ideas and concepts of spiritual science will show us that the disaster, pain, and suffering of our time, and we have not yet seen the worst of them, not nearly the worst, all this is intimately connected with humanity's rebellion against the Spirit. For the most part we have cut ourselves off from the divine spiritual life, and now we must regain our relationship to it. That is what I wanted to emphasize today, 
So you can increasingly have the feeling that the signs of the times are indeed speaking to us loud and clear, but we will understand them only if we have learned to read them with the help of spiritual science. It is impossible to overstate how seriously and intensively we must study spiritual science. We must continue to permeate our life more and more with what spiritual science gives us. Sadly, people nowadays lack the courage to really think about life and the forces that come to us from the spiritual realm. We must develop this essential courage, otherwise the catastrophe that has befallen humanity will last for a very long time. In other words, spiritual science is a means to find the way out of the conflicts of the present time. I ask you to please take this very seriously and ponder it deeply in your heart. Then what we've talked about here today can bear rich fruit in your heart and soul. The end of Lecture 5